0: The Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. (laughs) This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM.
1: Well, we continue our chats with Air Force personnel who've retired to Coffs Harbour. Today it's Wing Commander, retired Bert Milne. Bert was another Air Force country boy. He lived and worked on a wheat sheep farm. He says he attended the prestigious Manigatang Consolidated and Higher Elementary School to the end of Form Three and then the Geelong College to finish secondary school. He completed one year of an art and industrial design diploma at the Geelong Tech, but then came his time when he was accepted for number 66 pilot's course on the 3rd of May in 1967. Bert was introduced to his love of flying through his father who was, prior to taking up farming after serving in the Middle East in World War II, an aircraft engineer and private pilot. In fact, his engineer's license number was 773, and his pilot's license, issued in October 1929, was number 395. Burt flew mainly transport aircraft, firstly the Caribou, then the C-130 Hercules. He was aide-de-camp. To two chiefs of the Air Force, Air Marshal Reed and Air Marshal Rowland. He did several flying instructional tours, including one at Royal Malaysian Air Force Base, Alor Star, and he eventually resigned to join Qantas as a pilot instructor flight simulator on B 747s and then changed to a line pilot on B 747 and B 767 aircraft. But well, Bert, a great introduction. Uh, you've had an amazing career in the air force. How much do you remember of the uh, total no, package? I'm, I'm, I'm joking, Bert. <laughs> Look, you've, it's rather significant that uh, your father, he his engineer's license is number seven seven three, and his pilot's license is number three ninety five, issued in nineteen twenty nine. You have not been able to escape uh the services in your family have you not really
2: no yeah he was uh back in the 30s and he, when the war broke out he tried to uh to join the air force and he he'd lopped off the top of two fingers doing some work on a interplane strut on a de Havilland 82 I think it was as a result when he did his medical he did his best to hide it, he said, but doctors said, "Why are you standing to attention with your clenched with a clenched fist?" And he said, oh, "I was just doing it, you know and he said, "Well, give us a look, and he had two fingers missing so they wouldn't let him join the join the Air Force. Which was a pity because uh, that's what he really wanted to do, but he ended up in the uh, in the army in Ramy.
1: And he served in the Middle East during World War II, did he not? He did, That's right. Uh, a lot of people I, I had a grandfather who was in world war 1 and he was very reluctant to talk about it when he came back to me that is was your family re- easy to talk to about war
2: not really dad didn't talk about it a lot he told me a few humorous stories more than anything about the most memorable thing he said was when i shook his hand to go to when i was leaving to go to vietnam and he said keep your head down son
1: <laughs> that yeah. was that was it <laughs> Well, look, hey, when you think about it, that's very good advice. Although well, uh, in a plane, especially a caribou, it's very difficult to keep your head down.
2: That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
1: Why did you join?
2: I had an interest in aviation through Dad. I was brought up in the bush in a place called Menangatang in northern Victoria up in the Mallee. And Dad used to um, make gliders for us as kids and we used to go out and throw them around the paddock. And so I always had an interest in it. Because of the educational background of coming out of the bush, the education we got really wasn't suited to uh, sciences and physics and all that sort of stuff. So it sort of became a bit of an impossible dream. But when it went down to Geelong and I went to school at Geelong College for three years and picked up, you know, the physics and the maths that I needed and did a bit of civil flying at the local aero club and applied and, and got in.
1: So you joined, you went to Point Cook for training. Where did you end up for training as far as you as Yeah, yeah. B,
2: one BFTS at
1: Point Cook and then uh, across the two FTS at Pierce. And so. what were your choices? You're there, you've joined up, you're now in the Air Force. What path, uh, career paths did it open up? What were you allowed to do and what were you not allowed to do?
2: Once, well, I mean, when we were about to graduate, Vietnam was the big, the big puller of all the pilots of course um we only had off our course one posting to canberras uh, that was rico ferrell and uh, the rest of us went to uh, Well, no, there were no fighter postings um because of the feeder routes were through caribou and helicopters to um, feed the vietnam thing so um we didn't get a lot of say i applied for fighters but i got ended up flying a caribou so that's about as near as you can get
1: <laughs> well yeah well wasn't your, the first really exciting thing for you your first flight in a vampire
2: yeah, uh, <clears throat> that was the first um, f- flight in a jet because uh, the the advanced training was done in the vampire and um, that was a terrific aeroplane and, and I sort of my flying improved although I did pretty well at Point Cook flying wise I wasn't that academically gifted but um flying i did pretty well at um but at pierce in the vampire it was fantastic i loved it
1: i'd like if you don't mind i'd like to dwell on vietnam a little bit more with you but the first thing you i want you to tell me is before you get to vietnam obviously you've trained on fighters what were your steps into the caribou how did that occur
2: we were just posted off course um to 38 squadron at richmond And um, we were only there for, I was the first off our course to go to Vietnam from 38, from, you know, our course. And that was really only 12 months after graduating. So we were still new pilot officers when we we left 38 Squadron to go to Vietnam. So it all happened pretty quickly, really. We weren't all that experienced, uh, obviously. You know, so you ended up in suddenly in a (laughs) war situation rather than just dropping fodder around in a, out the back of a caribou in western New South Wales or something.
1: Tell us about the caribou. What sort of plane was it? What were its capabilities? What were its limitations? Just give us a picture of the caribou for someone who doesn't even know what a caribou is.
2: Yeah, well, transport aircraft designed to carry a platoon of uh, troops, 14 drums of aviation gasoline, a certain amount of just general cargo and stuff like that, Quite a large aeroplane in terms of um, wingspan. Its greatest capability was it was a stall aeroplane, a short takeoff and landing aircraft, and it was remarkably good at that. And that was really very interesting stuff. You know, I mean, we were operating... The shortest runway I ever operated into was in Vietnam, uh, and that was available length of 1,100 feet. You know, I mean, still very, very short runways and rough runways you could operate into and out of that were denied any other sort of aircraft it was a great airplane to fly I mean it was <laughs> I've heard it described as the only aircraft that would take a uh, bird strike up the arse. they said it wasn't particularly swift but when it got down to the to the essence of it it was very good
1: so you were you were virtually flying a, a transport passenger craft it <laughs>
2: oh yeah oh yeah you had had no arm we used to carry um in vietnam we carried three rifles which were um, bolted padlocked into the front of the uh, aircraft so that they couldn't be stolen and we were given a nine mil pistol but that was it i mean a lot of aircraft in the vietnam scenario took ground fire and you'd come back and you wouldn't have half, half the time you wouldn't know you'd just have holes through the fuselage
1: how many crew
2: two pilots and uh, generally one loadmaster although occasionally Uh, we'd get an assistant loadmaster, so a maximum of four.
1: That importance of crew uh, with a fighter pilot, that person is in the plane by themselves. Uh, Yes, there is a crew when they go back, but you must have formed a particularly strong relationship with the crew that you flew with.
2: Oh, yeah, you do. I mean, there were quite a number of them, but, I mean, every year uh, we march in Brisbane on Anzac Day and uh, quite a lot of the the loadmasters and... um, and so forth turn up to that. In fact, they organise it, that's to be honest. They, they're the ones that have driven the whole thing. And that's a big, that's a big day out, you know, that's a big march and a, a lot of people turn up. Still still very close relationship with them, yeah.
1: Where was the Caribou based? Uh, what were its duties?
2: Yep, well, we were based out of Vung Tau to the east of what used to be Saigon, on the coast there. We were the first of the Australian forces in and the last out of Vietnam they actually came, the Caribou, some of them came direct from Canada direct to Vietnam. A number of others were flown up of course from Australia. Our job there was to work for the American I think it was the 7th Air Force and they tasked us and we did a series of missions which ranged from the 01 mission through to the 08 mission. Uh, The 01 was a, a mission that ranged down to the south I think it was, the 02 went up north, the 03 went I don't know, round and round. Um, but we, we, we flew from, right from the southern tip of South Vietnam, right up to the DMZ. You know, you could get tasked to go anywhere on
1: the whole of, you know, the uh, Vietnam area. A zero one, you're on zero one, was your role there to take stuff somewhere and not bring stuff back? Or was it also to bring stuff back?
2: Often you'd go out very early. You'd go out and you'd shuttle stuff between, it might be, it, it could be anything. It could be troops, it could be, you know, ammunition, it could be um, fuel or whatever, and you'd uh, position at a bigger aircraft, a uh, bigger uh, area, and, and and shuttle it from there out to remote areas, and you just did maybe do that all day. Or you might be tasked to go on a set route, and you'd pick up, you know, passengers, troops, whatever, as you went around, and bring them back to Saigon. Or um, you may do body runs where you'd pick up. People who'd been uh, who'd been killed in action, and take them back to the uh, morgue in in uh, Saigon. Uh,
1: throughout your various flights, were you ever conscious of being under attack, other than finding bullet holes when you got back to the base?
2: You could see it. I mean, on occasions, one of the tricks used to be on finals. They used to. A lot of these areas were quite remote, out in paddy fields and so on, and they would just hide on on the extended approach path. And they might, uh, you know, give you a burst or something or let a grenade go or whatever or toss something at you. But uh, in general, we used to, once we got airborne, you'd go for above 3,000 feet, which was out of small arms fire range. And the rest of the time on the ground was where you were vulnerable.
1: So when you're out, on, out doing various activities or, or did you fly solo?
2: A lot of the time you're on your own. Uh, if you went into particularly uh, nasty areas, you could have... Um, Chopper support, or um, you know, they'd have attack jets operating in the area, sort of suppressing stuff. There was sort of a series of missions called um, what did they call oh, operational necessity missions, where you had to say deliver ammunition to an area which was under attack. That didn't happen often, but uh, these particular missions, you you had to get in. There was no excuse for not landing and getting this stuff off because if you didn't, well then somebody was going to die as a result of it because they'd run out of essential arms that didn't happen all that often but I can remember on one occasion when they had a series of F-4s bombing very near to where we were landing you know I mean you could feel the pressure wave I can remember feeling the pressure wave coming off the off the ordnance as it was going off you could feel it go through the cockpit and then push would come back again Occasionally, you mix it up with them, more so with the choppers. You know, they had a lot of heavy fire teams and you know
1: gunships and so on that'd be around the area where you'd be operating. So, let's go to 1970. Uh, <coughs> and the mountains. The is it the Tatson Mountains? There was a series of
2: uh, a range of hills, quite close to the airfield on the southwestern side of it, which I noticed. I, in fact, last night I just had a look at an atlas to see how far it was from where we'd taken off from, and. Um, it's actually disappeared. Its name has is, is disappeared from history, so it's called some other thing now, Bai Tong or something.
1: Let's resurrect that son. T- take us through the events. Uh, you, from set off, landing, the whole scenario, plus that all-important mortar.
2: Yeah, well, we had a mission. We were on um, a mission down in Corps to um, lift 14 drums of av of, uh, Tur. Uh, aviation turbine fuel from Bintui South, which is in the centre of the delta, northwest into um, That Son, which was a place we'd not been to before any of us, um, which was right on the Cambodian border, 40-45 minutes flying away, I guess, from where we took off, and we were tasked along with three other American caribous, uh, and we were to go in a sort of stream. We were number three, I think, out of the four, two or three and we were to sort of land, offload, get airborne, the next one land, offload, get airborne and so on. So um, we headed off, headed off with our load of, um, of fuel uh, towards um, My, The co-pilot on the day, Mick Calvert, he, he, we were all captains but he was acting co-pilot on that day and um, unfortunately his navigation was so precise that um, even though we were third in the, in the run of the, the aircraft he got to we got to a point and he said you know i think we should go down because if we don't descend and go to go to our left now we're going to end up in cambodia which you weren't allowed, to weren't do. allowed
1: to go, yeah.
2: the weather at the time there was 8 eight eights cloud you know quite low and we descended down and he eventually said oh there's a hole over there and we went over there and we got down through that and eventually found the airfield and on the way in we used to check with the nearest artillery positions to see if there'd been any action around that particular airfield. And on route Chowduckati, which was the last artillery uh, area that we checked to see if there'd been any action through the night, uh, they said it was clear, but we couldn't raise them on VHF, UHF or FM radio. Not that that was all that unusual because it used to happen a bit. It would throw a flag up, you know, you'd say, well, it's it's unusual, but anyway, we found the airfield I did a lap around it, looked down, we couldn't see any, you know, obvious problems. We briefed for a speed offload which was to land the aircraft, taxi off the runway, turn through 180, run the pre takeoff checks. As we were doing that, the load masters would be unstrapping the load, they'd leave one final restraint on, we'd back the aircraft up, give it a burst of uh, forward thrust, they'd snap the last load and it would just simply eject it out the back, it would just simply be ejected straight out the back of the aeroplane. We'd keep going and we would be gone and that used to reduce our time on the ground to you know just a couple of minutes really. So we'd taxied off, turned around on the uh, on the where all the fuel was positioned, it was all lying there in nice neat lines, did a 180 degree turn and when we did the uh, load master I'd sort of overcooked the turn just a bit and we weren't quite lined up exactly right with the fuel drums behind us and our fuel was going to go out on a little bit of an angle. And the loadmaster said to me, sir, are you going to straighten it up? And I said, "Uh, no, bugger it, just throw them out. Thank goodness, because as it turned out, had I straightened it up, that round that went through the port wing would have landed right beside the cockpit and taken us all out. There wouldn't have been any doubt about that. So that was a bit of luck. We were sitting there doing the pre takeoff checks, they were still, we'd come to a halt. I'd put that park brake on while they were doing their uh, unstrapping down the back. And then out the front of the aeroplane, I looked out to the runway, which was literally only 30 metres away. Suddenly this little perfect plume of white smoke rose vertically off the runway surface. It just seemed the oddest thing, it just sort of went poof. There was no noise, There there was no impact or anything from it, it just rose out of the ground. And I thought, what the hell's that? Within a second or two from then, there was an absolutely massive explosion as the second mortar went through the port wing, just outboard of the port engine, and um, the whole aircraft just sort of bucked, you know, it compressed to the left oleo, and then it bucked back up, sort of threw me across the right-hand side towards Mick. And when I recovered myself and looked out the port wing, port window, of the cockpit. You could see the top of the wing sticking up, you know, there's shards of metal sticking up and it just suddenly exploded, just went boom. So it was pretty clear that command-making decisions weren't really that hard because we weren't about to fly with one and a half wings, so I just cut the mixtures and yelled out, get out. So we bolted down the back. The whole back of the aeroplane was peppered with shrapnel and particularly the empennage and the, the rear of the aircraft. It had gone past, a bit whistled through the cockpit of something, I remember that, but didn't hit us. But the back of the aeroplane was just peppered. We um, hit the ground running and it was, a as a small aside, about uh, 2015 at our march in Brisbane, the assistant loadmaster came up to me and said, um, Sir, do you remember when we were getting brassed up, what you said as, as we left the aeroplane? What you said to us? And I said, no. And he said, well, you said to f off i said oh did i bob and he said yeah but you said it twice (laughs) which (laughs) which sort of amused me but anyway so we did f off and um ended up in the in the fuel dump which was the only cover we had so we're there in 44 gallon drums of gas getting the bejesus brass out of us and by now you know they'd put a string of five mortars across us and then they opened up with machine gun fire and RPG and all sorts of stuff. In our haste to leave the aeroplane we were completely naked, weapon naked, we didn't have a pistol on us even because we used to put these things in our survival vests in the back of the back of the seat because it was so damned hot and we'd left them there. Anyway, he eventually got down and we got back to this um, pillbox um, which was a concrete structure about, I don't know, 12 feet by 12 feet I guess. Um, slits cut in the side and hardened I would imagine because it took a few hits Uh, and we got in there and um, there was an American second lieutenant or lieutenant uh, and a sergeant and two other guys and uh, we introduced ourselves and uh, I said have you got any comms with uh, anyone because i you know we've got to tell someone that we're in strife here because uh, and he said yeah sure he said uh, who do you want to talk to and i said well preferably 35 squadron and he said yeah well you can ring him and i said what we're, we're we're in the middle of nowhere and i mean they just had the crap blasted out of him but you you could actually there was some sort of field telephone system he had obviously radio operated um and you could ring up and i actually dialed 35 squadron's number and i got onto the admin o and um, mike andrews was his name and mike said um 35 squadron you know admin o speaking and i said mike it's bert you know we've i want to speak to the co we're in big strife you know and he said i'll put you through so he put me through to Stu mitchell who was the co and i think he thought we would taking the mickey out of him because, you know, I said to him, sir, that's on, the aeroplane's just been, you know, hit, it's burning, we're in deep car-car and we've got to get out of here, so can you help us out? And I think he thought it was a joke. So Great. <laughs> anyway, we eventually sorted out that it wasn't because uh, an RPG or something bounced off the roof at about that point and made, <laughs> made the point that uh, we were in trouble. And, um, and we sort of rung off at that. So that was a bit unusual, but we were, we were in this thing for quite a while. Um, and uh, eventually they, they put in some heavy fire teams um, of choppers to suppress the, the guys on the side of the hills that were giving us the grief. And they, um, they put down a lot of fire and then I, I'm pretty sure they put in some tack jets after that. There were a couple of couple of um, tac jets whistled through and dropped some ordnance on them, and then that did shut them up. Uh, and uh, we eventually got out by helicopter later that day. Uh, and I think we went to Chowduck actually, and we were picked up from there with um, one of our squadron aircraft. Got down to pick us, pick us up. So it was a. Uh, an interesting, it, it was the only... I, I carried this thing like an albatross around my neck, but it was the only um, uh, Royal Australian Air Force caribou lost to enemy action during the whole of the Vietnam War, you know. <laughs> there are a few of them that, that crashed and ran into things and got broken and all that sort of stuff, but we only lost one to enemy action and this was it. If you
1: had listened to your load, man and straightened up, yeah. it would not be now sharing that story. So, right decision by a captain in the situation <laughs> at the time. Take it that <laughs> way.
2: I'd like to, okay, I'll take that on board.
1: While this is all going on, you're in the plane, the border attack, etc., etc. Do, do things go through uh, an Air Force soldier, naval person's mind, this is it, or is it all action? you've been trained, these are the things we've got to do. What's the, what's the feeling?
2: No, you don't. The short answer is you don't get trained. What, you react? Well, I suppose you get trained to the extent that, you know, you've got to make some sort of decisions, I suppose. But, I mean, at the time, it's all so quick. Uh, and uh, adrenaline, I mean, is a mighty thing. You know, I mean, our loadmaster who, Nev Church, he was known as slow walk and slow talk and nev, which he was, but I reckon he probably holds the 70-metre 70, 70 sprint record for South <laughs> Vietnam <laughs> still to this day. But So you react, you just, I mean, you go into survival mode, really, you know, and, and uh, you just hope that you're not going to get done.
1: How would you, if someone come up to you and and said to you, a teenager comes up and says, Bert, what was your time in Vietnam like? What would you answer?
2: Initially, it was like the greatest boys' own adventure you could imagine. I mean, in the beginning, I mean, you come out of an air force like the Royal Australian Air Force that has got, let's say, twenty Caribous and fifty fighters and something like that, um, you know, and uh, thirty bombers or something. And you you go to Vietnam. I can remember the very first mission, and we came out of the cloud at, at uh, Da Nang. We we're doing a GCA ground controlled approach in bad weather, we popped out at about, I don't know, 600 feet or something. On the end of the runway in front of us, around the end of the runway, were more aircraft of one type than we had in our entire Air Force. Now that gives you an idea of, of the sort of scale that the Americans operate at. One thing you don't do with the Yanks is uh, piss them off because they'll just keep coming. They don't stop. I mean, we saw it over and over again where you know, there'd be an incident, say, down the delta somewhere. And they'd send in a chopper team of, I don't know, five, five choppers or something to suppress fire. If the guys on the ground were silly enough to shoot one of them down, they'd send back 10. And if they got hit again, they'd send back 30. And they just don't stop. It's a sobering thing. The longer it goes on, I mean, we were there for a year, and uh, it's a sobering sort of experience to, uh, to see it in its full flight because it gets pretty ugly when you see the whole thing you know, in full bore.
1: I would assume then you have admiration for the relationship between Australia, RAAF and USAF.
2: Yeah, well they're our allies, you know, we depend on them and we did depend on them, we still depend on them. You know, that hasn't changed over the the history of our, you know, uh, relationship with them. They're a different group in a war zone, they're a pretty, (laughs) they're a pretty unusual group. Yeah, you know, they stick acid deuces in their hatband and they carry pearl handle holsters and all this sort of stuff. They all think they're John Wayne and, you
1: know, they're going to save the world, but that's just what they do.
2: But they do it in a big way.
1: There are a couple of other things I want to talk about. I, I've focused mainly on Vietnam because I think it's important. You know, the battles of Long Tan, the battles of Coral Balmoral, uh, we were there and we did have a very significant role in the Air Force but I do want to talk about other things. I'm not quite sure what you had in mind. Your spin-out engine failure, was that a practice or was that real?
2: Oh no, that was real. No, we were we were doing, uh, this is when I was instructing in my very first um, tour at Pierce, and we were doing spinning um, training and the student was flying it, mucked up the recovery from the spin a bit and I took over and sort of recovered and I was, talking to him as I was flying the aircraft out of the recovery and and just said to him you know you've got to be more aggressive with the input of particularly forward stick uh, which is a th- the major control that's going to stop you from spinning and um, I was rolling the power, the, th- the thrust on just as I was talking to him and nothing was happening there was no noise so um, I gave it, stopped talking and uh, Gave it a couple more pokes and nothing happened, and shut it down and tried to restart. Nothing. And by then, uh, we were at about eight thousand feet, so it was either jump out time or um, or land it. And I couldn't make it back to Pierce. We couldn't glide that far, so we landed in um, Jinjin, which is a, a training runway to the north of Pierce. And there was no uh, there was no one flying there at the time, so it was it was fully vacated at the time and we just made it there. We got over the top at 2,000 feet, which was halfway between what we call high and low key. Eventually got it on the ground there. The amusing thing out of that exercise was, I felt pretty pretty good about myself for getting this thing on the ground safely. And, um, and I'd put out a Mayday call. So this search and rescue helicopter who was flown by Bob Hobson They were meant to get there as quick as they could, so we'd already stopped on the runway and we'd safety the seats and got out and I could hear in the background way up in the distance, bop, 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 and here comes Hobbo and I said, where the bloody hell were you, mate? And he said, oh, we were up the Avon picking mushrooms, (laughs) (laughs) which he was. (laughs) Up the Avon Valley, which is just Uh to the north of Pier, northeast of Piers.
1: When you went to Malaysia, you've said that that was your first experience in foreign training thinking. How does it differ?
2: I mean, you don't question the boss in either our way of thinking or or theirs. But there's a very distinct sort of system of you know rank there, which you know you just simply don't question. You do what you're told. You know, it it was a it's just a different way of thinking you know there's loss of face involved you can't embarrass them by asking questions that you shouldn't just the way it goes you know I mean it was a great experience and I loved it and I made some good friends over there but you know it was it, it was different
1: what does that then say about our in the RAAF's training uh, you mean in terms of how would you quantify qualify the RAAF's training method
2: Oh, I th- oh no, no! I think well, no. I think it was uh, it was really very good. We had uh, we produced uh, very good, very good pilots, and I mean, I worked in Qantas for twenty years. I, I was employed in their training system for quite a number of years before I went back to the line flying with them, <coughs> and it was obvious that to me, you know, the military trained pilots, because of the exposure, I think more than anything. I'm not saying they're better than the other guys, but you get exposed to all sorts of things that you would never see in civilian training it just doesn't happen and you get equipment to use that you know is um, is outstanding equipment and you can go you can go on a training course anywhere in the world you know that um uh, so you get you get there's no sort of limits on it and it's pretty much up to you to make the most of it i think
1: all that time in caribou how did you end up flying with the Roulettes?
2: No, no, no. That was um, I was actually when I was chief flying instructor at Central Flying School, um, which is the School of Instructors at Sale. Um, I was offered the lead of the Roulettes, uh, which I knocked back, which was a pity because I regret that now. But at the time, I did it on the advice of the of the outgoing CFI, and he said you can do one of two jobs you can be cfi you can see be the leader of the roulettes he said you can't do both so i um i became their mentor pretty much you know i was involved in you know their their training and and flew um not as part of the roulettes but as as the uh as the overseer of the you know, I used to debrief and I'd go flying with them and, you know, we'd come up. And then the CO of CFS would give them the final approval to do what
1: what they would uh, want to do in terms of displays and so on. With your varied experiences, what did you take on board in your own wing commander's role? What did you see your role as being?
2: Well, depending on the job, I mean, the um, I was... Uh, as wing commander, I didn't spend a lot of time as wing commander, to be honest with you. I was posted in as director of air force safety one, uh, and it was from there that I resigned to go to Qantas. Um, but I'd only just come out of staff college there, so most of my the time that I had to make a difference would have been as a squadron leader. But in that role, in those roles, particularly as CFI CFS, I could do something. And there's not often where you can go into jobs and actually make a difference, but that was one of them, where you could influence, you know, uh, training and have an input that would be listened to, you know, and we started up a lot of uh, training uh, for senior officers and so on in terms of safety and um, so on. There were a lot of courses that we started running and uh, which we lectured on and that sort of thing. So you could make a difference in those sort of jobs. Unfortunately, looking back, I wish I'd never resigned because I think there was a big mistake but anyway that's the way it goes.
1: I'm a teenager and I come up and I know you've been in the Air Force and I say Bert I'm thinking about joining the Air Force after school why should I?
2: Yeah well see I don't know how you'd advise somebody now because I don't know the Air Force of today all that well. I mean I've had some insight into it but not not a lot but if I was answering from my experience I'd say join it so that you can you can do something that's meaningful it actually does something for, uh, you know, your, your country, which I think is meaningful, because you don't just go off and fight in Vietnam. I mean, you know, we were doing flood relief, we were doing bloody, um all sorts of, you know, famine relief in New Guinea, flood relief in Western New South Wales, Queensland back in the 70s. You know, some terrific work for the general public. Um, and you can get yourself really well-educated and trained in the military. There's just no comparison as I said before you know you can you can do all sorts of training courses and fly all sorts of equipment and get involved with all sorts of people that are handling you know equipment that most people don't even know exists let alone get involved with so you know when you step out from the military you know you're in a pretty good position to do a job allied to your particular skill set you know that um, that you would not normally get in civilian life
1: But For everything that you've done, and you are part of the very rich tapestry of uh, the history of the Royal Australian Air Force. Congratulations on what you've done, and thank godness you didn't listen to your dad. Keep your head down. (laughs) Uh, You looked up, you saw the sky, you flew, you contributed. So, congratulations. Thank you for your time, and it's been a real privilege chatting. Thanks, mate. Yeah, nice to meet you. Globally, The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians, and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of per and ad astra.
0: This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families, produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the wellbeing of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.